Welcome back to the Evidence-Based Rheumatology Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Putman, and this is episode 57, Plasma Exchange and Glucocorticoids in Severe Anca-Associated Vasculitis, also known as the PEXAVAS trial. This was published in February of 2020 by Walsh et al. in the New England Journal of Medicine. Now, I am very excited to talk about this trial. People in the vasculitis community have been looking forward to it for a long time. It was an investigator-run trial that answers a really important question in how to treat ANCA-associated vasculitis. The brief background for this is that when people come in with ANCA-associated vasculitis, they're often very sick. We give them post-dose glucocorticoids, cyclophosphamide, or rituximab for induction, and often we'll give them plasma exchange. The hope is that plasma exchange will A, prevent them from dying, and B, prevent long-term badness. Badness being defined as in-stage renal disease, which we see often in this patient group, um, or perhaps respiratory failure resulting in long-term pulmonary complications. Plasma exchange is an expensive therapy, and it's also hard to withhold things like plasma exchange from patients who you think are very sick when we suspect that there's a benefit. So before this trial, most of what we knew about plasma exchange was based on observational data. That's not wrong. A lot of the time, observational data is all we have, but you can never quite get the same confidence in a treatment strategy from observational data that you could from a powerful, well-designed, randomized controlled trial. PEXAVAS was that trial, so let's talk about it. Up front, they already did something really fun with this trial, which is that they designed it as a two-by-two factorial trial. What does that mean? Well, when you randomize someone, they can either go into one of two groups. So you could either get plasma exchange or you could get no plasma exchange. Now, typically, that's the end of the story. But in this trial, within each of those groups, patients were also randomized further into a reduced dose or a regular dose glucocorticoid taper. So this is fun. You wind up creating four different groups, but at the end of the trial, because of randomization, you can analyze them, and you have basically the same power as you would if you just run two trials. There are some complicated issues. For instance, what if there's an interaction between the two? What if giving patients glucocorticoids and plasma exchange is much better than no glucocorticoids and no plasma exchange? Issues like that make me generally prefer a straightforward one-thing-against-one-thing randomized controlled trial. All of these newfangled things we're trying seem to have downsides to me, but in this case, I actually think it was really nice. We managed to get a little more information out of a big trial. The trial itself ran from June of 2010 through September of 2016. Patients had to be 15 years of age or older, and they had to have either new or relapsing ANCA-associated vasculitis. Defined for this trial is granulomatosis with polyangitis, GPA, or microscopic polyangitis, MPA. EGPA was not one of the diseases that you could have to get into it. Even though it's often associated with ANCA, we tend to study it separately, so this is pretty standard. You had to be positive for an MPO or a PR3 antibody, and you had to have either kidney involvement or pulmonary involvement, specifically diffuse alveolar hemorrhage. So this is a trial that's essentially being run on the patients of interest, which I like. As I said before, patients were randomized in a one-to-one-to-one-to-one ratio to the four groups, and all patients received induction immunosuppressive therapy. This could either be cyclophosphamide or rituximab, and was left to the discretion of the treating physician. Now, an important note is that that choice was made before randomization. Why does this matter? Well, I haven't mentioned it yet, but the PEXAVAS trial was not blinded. It's very hard to blind patients to something like plasma exchange. This was already a weighty undertaking, and to try and make sure that it actually happened, they allowed it to be open label. Now, one problem that this would clearly introduce is that when physicians hear that their patient is not getting plasma exchange, it may influence what they use for induction therapy. In this podcast, I don't want to tackle the thorny question of cyclophosphamide versus rituximab. 
but I can tell you that some physicians definitely favor one or the other, and I could imagine that them changing their behavior based on the randomization decision. In this case, they chose the therapy first, so that helped to mitigate that issue. Regarding the glucocorticoids, I sent out a tweet that showed the standard or reduced dose glucocorticoid regimen, so check it out on Twitter at EBRoom if you want to see it. It's actually pretty impressive. Patients in the reduced dose group wound up getting 60% of the dose of the standard group, which is actually a pretty big difference in glucocorticoid dosing. Finally, the primary outcome was a composite of death from any cause or in-stage renal disease, which is defined by 12 or more continuous weeks of renal replacement therapy. This is a great primary outcome measure. We don't get death as an outcome in very many rheumatology trials, and in an unblinded trial, you like to see death being the outcome because it's relatively objective. Softer outcome measures that involve, say, a physician global assessment are often going to be susceptible to the physician's own biases if a a trial is run as an open label. Now, regarding the statistical analysis plan, interestingly, the plasma exchange part was run as an intention-to-treat principle, which makes sense to me, but the glucocorticoid tapering was done as a per-protocol analysis. This is an interesting quirk of non-inferiority designs where running an intention-to-treat protocol as opposed to a per-protocol design can actually increase the risk of falsely showing a non-inferiority design. They talk about this briefly in the paper. Um, I think it was appropriate to do a per-protocol design, but you definitely wanted to see a sensitivity analysis that showed the intention-to-treat data as well. I think that's enough for background, so let me tell you about what these patients looked like. Most of them were a little over 60. The majority, 60%, were men, give or take and only 10% had a history of vasculitis. That means that the majority of patients in this trial were new diagnoses. 20%, give or take, were undergoing dialysis on enrollment. So that's only one in five. These are patients who had renal involvement, but were not necessarily the terrifying multisystem organ failure group that we see in the ICU. And only 10% had severe diffuse pulmonary hemorrhage. This is a great example of why I love to read Table 1, and I highly recommend you spend a lot of time on it. It's easy to come away from this trial with a blanket, we don't need to use this, but bear in mind that that patient you have with severe diffuse pulmonary hemorrhage did not drive this outcome. Less than 10% of the people had this, so this trial may not address that population as well as you'd like. Only 10% had CNS involvement, which is another important point. The neurologists love plasma exchanging people, so I don't think this trial can necessarily dissuade them from that. And the majority of people in this trial got cyclophosphamide. 50% got IV cyclophosphamide, 34% got oral cyclophosphamide, and only 15 to 16% got rituximab. That's not a problem. All of those are reasonable options for induction therapy of ANC-associated vasculitis. Personally, I use a lot of rituximab for these people, and it's important for me to note that this trial doesn't necessarily reflect my practice. Now, regarding the results of the primary outcome measure, which was death or end-stage renal disease, 28.4% of the plasma exchange group and 31% of the no plasma exchange group met the primary outcome measure. Hazard ratio was not statistically significant. This was essentially a negative trial with regards to plasma exchange for ANCA-associated vasculitis. This was somewhat surprising to a lot of us who thought that this therapy really worked, but this to me is a relatively strong finding. It was a big trial. It was powered enough to exclude a benefit that would be reasonable for this patient population, and I find this pretty convincing. The partially adjusted analysis and the per-protocol analysis were similar, so nothing really new there. At one year of follow-up, if you squint really hard, the difference went up a little bit. That's about 4% difference. It was still not significantly different, but this is definitely one where you could probably sneak a laser pointer between those two curves if you really felt like it. Regarding the glucocorticoid taper, there was also no significant difference. 
While for plasma exchange, this was essentially a negative result, for the glucocorticoid taper, which is a non-inferiority design, this is, to me, a positive result. Death or end-stage renal disease occurred in 27.9% in the reduced group and 25.5% in the standard group. So no significant difference. Less steroids was just as good as full steroids in this trial. That is a really, really interesting finding that will definitely change my practice. A sensitivity analysis using the intention to treat population was essentially the same, so I think you can hang your hat on this. That's doubly true because the rate of serious infections was significantly higher in the group that got the standard glucocorticoid taper. So that was 27.2% in the reduced dose group and 33% in the standard dose group. So that's a 6% absolute difference, which gives you a number needed to treat of 15 to 20 patients for one serious infection. That's not a huge difference, but in a group of patients where mortality is ultimately driven these days by infection, saving people infections is a very laudable goal. Doing it by giving a little less steroids seems like a layup, and I think that this is a strong finding from this trial. A number of secondary outcomes were assessed, death, ESRD, sustained remission, serious adverse events, none of these were significantly different. Now, if you want to go poking around, as many of us are wont to do, they have quite a large appendix where they share some more tables. My gestalt on the appendix and all of the subgroup analyses that we love to overinterpret is that there's just not a lot here. The error bars were wide. There was nothing that clearly favored one thing or another, with the potential notable exception of the rituximab group. Unfortunately, only 15% of patients got rituximab, but in that group, it looked like the standard glucocorticoid regimen was a little bit better. That does make me worried that if I decide to use rituximab, I should consider the standard as opposed to the reduced dose glucocorticoid regimen. That's not clearly supported by this trial. The trial wasn't powered to show that, but it is something that I think is worth noting. Last but not least, they did, last but certainly not least, one of my favorite hobby horses is patient report outcome measures. There is no difference in PROs between any of these groups. So whatever this is doing, none of it really wound up helping a patient's quality of life. There are a couple problems with this trial that I want to highlight, first being blinding. They used objective outcome measures. I think that's a real strength of this trial and a real way that they mitigated the problem of non-blinding. However, that doesn't remove the problem of no blinding. In an unblinded trial, physicians can certainly treat different groups differently. They could give people who didn't get plasma exchange a little more TLC. Maybe they could stretch their glucocorticoid regimen a little bit. Even though there is a standard taper, there's a range of how compliant that taper you had to be to still be considering doing it. Maybe patients who didn't get plasma exchange were more likely to get some other therapies. Maybe they were less likely to get pushed out of the ICU early. There's all these things that could have been a little bit different that could have influenced this trial. Ultimately, I don't think it did, and I think this trial is strong enough that it's not as big of a concern, but it's something you should know. The second thing is this whole cyclophosphamide rituximab issue. I wish the rituximab group had been a little bit bigger, because I think it may have raised some interesting questions about efficacy of those two drugs, but it wasn't. And unfortunately, this wasn't also powered to show some of the long-term downstream effects of choosing either of those regimens, so this really doesn't answer anything about either of those drugs. I should also note that the power of this trial was good. I think they excluded a large benefit, for sure, and I think they excluded a moderate benefit of plasma exchange. Did they exclude a small benefit of plasma exchange? I don't think so. Especially if you look at the secondary analysis, it does look like at one year, there may be a little something there. I don't think it's a big something, and I think it's perfectly warranted to withhold plasma exchange, but there is a possibility that maybe 1 in 30 patients would benefit from this. 
Last, but certainly not least, you need to remember what patients were in this trial. Only 8 to 9% of patients had severe diffuse alveolar hemorrhage. So if you have a patient in the ICU with severe diffuse alveolar hemorrhage, this trial really wasn't designed to answer the question of whether or not they need to have plasma exchange. This is likewise true for a patient who's in the ICU and is undergoing renal replacement therapy. Only one in five patients were on dialysis in this trial, and you really can't say for certain that that patient wouldn't benefit from plasma exchange because these really sick people were not a big enough part of this trial. So for me, that patient who you see with ankylosing vasculitis, who has DAH and is requiring continuous renal replacement therapy and has multi-system organ failure, is still a patient where the question of plasma exchange could be considered. If you have a patient who presents with diffuse alveolar hemorrhage, but it's not that bad, or they have some kidney involvement, but they're not on dialysis, I think this trial relatively definitively answered the question of how you should approach them. I would not be necessarily considering plasma exchange for that patient, and I would be thinking about giving them a reduced-dose steroid taper. One final closing thought about this trial is that we need more of this in rheumatology. Thanks to the relative profitability of many of the drugs in our space, we have a lot of drug companies running trials, which is great. We're getting a lot of new therapies that we can give to patients and help them. But there's a lot of unanswered questions about therapies that don't necessarily have industry funding, but we really need to figure out whether or not they work. In myositis, this is so important. What should we be giving these patients? Methotrexate, Celsept, IVIG, rituximab, JAK inhibitors. There's all these things we throw against the wall and no trials like this to really guide our decision-making. It is a huge credit to all the people who ran this trial and undertook this enormous effort that this happened. It has answered a useful question for the field of vasculitis. And ultimately, I think this is going to save society a lot of money. Plasma exchange is not a cheap therapy. Running good, big trials that are adequately powered to answer a useful question is an incredibly valuable and useful undertaking. And I really hope that we continue to get trials like this in vasculitis and other spaces. In no way was this a negative trial. It showed that the benefit of plasma exchange in this population cannot be that large. That is an incredibly positive finding for the field of vasculitis. It also showed that we can get away with smaller doses of glucocorticoids. That is an incredibly positive thing for patients. So I guess I'm just saying thank you to the people who ran the PEXAVAS trial. And I hope that in the future we'll see a lot more like this in vasculitis and other fields. Whew, that is it. I'm not sure when I'll be back to the podcast, The next couple of weeks are very busy for me, and I have a couple of meetings coming up that are going to take a lot of my time. I'll be talking at SOTA, State of the Art, which is in New Orleans, so everyone, please come to SOTA. If you see me there, come up and say hi. I'd love to shake your hand and hear about what I can do better. I will also be going to Room Now Live. I'll be giving a talk about how to read the medical literature. I expect it to be controversial and fun, so please tune into my talk at Room Now Live. That'll be in Fort Worth, but you can also watch it online. Drop by Jack Cush's website to find the information. I'll be talking on Sunday morning. So, you know, wake up, grab some coffee, and listen to me rant about how to read a paper properly. I hope this was fun. I hope to see you at one of these meetings, and I will be back as soon as I'm able, but it may be a couple weeks at least. Thanks again for tuning in, and have a great week.